this program is made possible by the members and donors for the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, The Laura Flanders Show, The Green News Report, Activism from Best of the Left, and The Young Turks. And if you didn't think that global warming was bad enough already with all the suffering and death it promises to bring, don't forget the worst part, it's also going to cost you money. I want to talk this evening for a second about money. Because the things we know about Earth in this current precarious moment and the things we know about what Earth might look like in the future all comes back to money. Here's what I mean. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, United Nations body, basically says we really, really have to try to not warm the planet in this century more than 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And if that sounds like not that much to you, Think about the complicated system of the human body and the difference between being 98.6 degrees and 102.6 degrees. Adding just 4 degrees doesn't seem like a lot out of 98.6, but if you're running a 102.6 fever, how are you feeling? What if it lasts for several weeks? For Earth, no one knows exactly what happens if we add more than 2 degrees Celsius, but the consensus is it's much, much more than melting glaciers. It is bad, very bad. Phrases like uninhabitable planet or civilization not existing in any recognizable form start to enter the picture at the tail end of risk. Now, here's where things get interesting. If we want to stay below that two degrees Celsius threshold, there's a limited amount of fossil fuel we can burn. I mean, we know more or less how much fossil fuel raises the temperature a certain amount. And the amount of carbon contained in the proven fossil fuel reserves on the planet right now that we can get out with current technology is 2,795 gigatons. And if we want to stay in that zone of not exceeding a global temperature increase of more than 2 degrees Celsius, we can only use one-fifth of it. 20%. That means 80%, 80% of the known fossil fuel reserves that are on the books, that companies like BP and Exxon know about, along with oil-reliant nations like Saudi Arabia, 80% of it needs to stay in the ground. 80% of the fossil fuel needs to stay in the ground. And this is why I want to talk about money. Because that stuff that needs to stay in the ground, 80% of what's on the books, the fossil fuel companies, the oil-producing nations, that stuff is worth a ton of money. Best estimates are the ballpark of $20 trillion. And so the only way this works out is if we somehow convince these giant energy companies and nations with entire economies built on fossil fuel extraction to somehow leave it behind, to give up their claim on $20 trillion of wealth, to leave that money in the ground. What do you think the chances are of that happening? It's not an optimistic prospect. In fact, in all of history, there's really only one time anything even remotely like that has ever happened. 1865, the end of the Civil War and the liberation of the slaves. Now, before we go any further, I am not comparing slavery to the burning of fossil fuel. The evil of slavery is specific, distinct, and incomparable. The only thing comparable to slavery is slavery. This isn't about that. It's about a basic question of political economy. What does it take to make concentrated, powerful interests relinquish their wealth on this scale? In 1860, slaves, which were considered property in the South, in fact, represented about 16% of the total household assets of the entire country. They represented nearly half the total wealth of the South on the eve of the secession. Historian Eric Foner told me in 1860, slaves as property were worth more than all the banks, factories, and railroads in the country put together. In today's terms, 
a stunning $10 trillion. Again, I'm not talking about the moral price tag, which is incalculable. I'm talking about what the economic value of slavery meant to the economy of southern slave owners, and that economic value was about $10 trillion. And those slaveholders, the slave power, feared they were going to be forced to give it up. What followed was the bloodiest conflict this nation has ever seen, and 600,000 people dead. So, where are we now? Well, here's why you should not be feeling completely hopeless, completely pessimistic, faced with this single loan precedent. There may be ways to get to the point where leaving trillions of dollars in fossil fuel in the ground doesn't seem like such an impossibility. The good news is that getting fossil fuels out of the ground happens to be extremely expensive. It takes a ton of capital investment, billions and billions of dollars to get it out. And that, that is the Achilles heel. One way to attack that Achilles heel is put a price on carbon that makes it not worth anyone's while to take all that stuff out of the ground. Another is to work to create cost-competitive alternatives that make the fossil fuels sitting in the ground increasingly worthless. Solar energy, which as we have discussed on the show, is becoming a more viable alternative every day. To bring about the day when that stuff stays in the ground, what you are seeing is a movement, including today's Keystone protests in Washington, D.C., seeking to attack that weak link to disrupt the chain of doom that is the fossil fuel industry by preventing them from making the investments they need to get the stuff out of the ground. That, that is what the Keystone fight is about. It's about the pipeline and the tar sands, but it's about way, way more than that. It's about the point at which we stop, we stop pulling the stuff out of the ground. It's about the point at which we say, this stuff needs to lay there. It needs to stay there. We cannot take it out. It is the red line. In this case, the reason the pipeline is so important is that without that investment, without that capital expenditure to build that pipeline, it doesn't make much sense to take all the stuff out. That's the weakness. That's the weakness being attacked, and that needs to be replicated times a thousand. Look, I know who you are, but this has gone way too far. Said Mac, why can't you see? That for the progress of man, I must strip all this land. It's a national priority. But we must have more electricity. Said, listen sir, to what I see For the progress of man You've destroyed my homeland And ripped apart my community This is fascinating uh, Reuters re- uh, reports That farmers insurance And I believe this is the first time This has ever happened Has filed nine class action suits Last month against nearly 200 communities in the Chicago area, arguing that local governments should have known rising global temperatures would lead to heavier heavier rains and did not do enough to fortify their sewers and stormwater drains. This is really important. Because if they win this class action suit, you know, you got, uh, presumably you had heavy rains, sewers overflowed, stormwaters, uh, drains overflowed, 
people's houses got um, maybe their houses got uh, their their basements got flooded. Maybe it caused damage to cars, uh, other private property that was insured and by farmers. And the farmer's insurance is saying you had every reason to know the potential for this. And you did not take steps to mitigate the risk to private property. If they win this. Now, what's happening is that the lawyers for the local uh, uh, governments are going to argue that government immunity protects them from from these like uh, these uh, sorts of class action. Um this is the same thing that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers in the uh, suits that followed Hurricane Katrina was the way that they escaped any liability here in terms of government payouts to private insurance companies or to individuals. That is secondary. The point is we are now seeing insurance companies saying, look, you've, you've seen the data. You're aware of the likelihood of this increasing. And you are not mitigating the risks. We will see more of these cases, said Michael Gerard, director of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School in New York. No one is expected to plan for a 500-year storm, but if horrible events are happening with increasing frequency, that may shift the duties onto municipalities. Now, in a lawsuit like this, who will pay the damages? It is the taxpayers. And this is going to put pressure on local communities, and frankly, I don't see why it wouldn't be the case, states and the federal government ultimately, to do more to mitigate for climate change disasters because the data is there. I mean, this is, this is the type of thing that we need to see. Now, They want cities to push, I mean, to basically invest in prevention as a way to avoid future lawsuits. It's going to cause a certain adapt, uh, you know, adapting by localities. And then what you're going to see is an increased political will to actually fight the source of the problem. You know, we spoke to that uh, Rolling Stone reporter, I guess it was some time ago, maybe it was last fall, about the fact that all of the best scientific research, all of the experts, including those from uh, from Holland that were flown in to see if they could save Miami in the future, they all said, no, not happening. Rising sea levels, we know how to build dams, but you guys are on limestone. It's going to seep up. Miami is done. The more that things like this happen, the more it will create the will, the political will to address it, and they won't be able to escape it. I mean, there was that story about the uh, emergency disaster relief guy who went ahead uh, to a committee in uh, the Florida state legislature to explain um, what the implications of rising sea levels are going to be, and he got a 15-minute lecture on the book of Genesis by one of the state lawmakers. And no, Genesis is not the name of a book about uh, preparing for climate change. Well, uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Did you see Noah? Maybe we should do that. This is-
Last night we were talking with a scientist in the University of Florida, oddly enough, who's doing research in the Arctic. I could see if I was, like, with the University of the Arctic, I would want to do research in Florida. Anyway, uh, he was saying that the uh, peat, the, 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 excuse me, the permafrost, much of it is peat, the permafrost is melting at alarming rates around the world. It's got a lot of, lot of scientists really freaked out because he said, and this is, this is something, a, a distinction that I hadn't gotten before that has to do with um, global warming. Methane, when it's immediately released into the atmosphere, is about 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide, molecule for molecule, as a greenhouse gas. Over about a 20-year period, it begins to degrade, after about 20 years in the atmosphere, it begins to degrade uh, and continues over the next 100 years. In fact, actually, I mean, it begins degrading right away, but uh, anyhow, if you, if you look at it over a 20-year period, or over, excuse me, over a 100-year period, it's about 20 times as potent as, as uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, if you look at it over a 50-year period, I think it's a 33, 35 times, whatever. So you get these different numbers. But it, whatever it is, I mean, you know, 20 times more potent means 2,000%. Right? So it's a lot more potent. And what he said was that the, the problem with permafrost, permafrost is soil that is typically covered with snow and is frozen year-round. It's permanently frosty. And when the snow melts and the soil is exposed to the, to the sun, the, the soil, which is filled, I mean, this is soil, he said, you know, from, from before the last ice age, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, very, very, very old dirt filled with old dead plants. Lots and lots of organic matter, lots and lots of carbon. In fact, he said this, the carbon locked up in the permafrost just in the Arctic is four to six times, as I recall, the amount of all the carbon in the, in the atmosphere right now, which is mind-boggling. But here's where it gets really scary, and it's something I didn't realize, or, or really interesting, or both. And that is that when permafrost melts... Because ice occupies more space than water. You ever had a bottle of water sit outside and freeze and it bursts the, well, pipes burst in the winter, right? Because as water turns to ice, it gets bigger. So as the permafrost melts, the ice crystals in the permafrost melt, they turn to water, and that causes the permafrost to get, to collapse. It, it settles down. It, it actually drops. It'll drop inches, feet. And as it drops, the water that used to be ice in it floats to the top. The dirt is settling, which means that the bacterial processes that are happening in the permafrost are no longer what's called aerobic bacterial process. In other words, uh, you know, oxygen-consuming bacteria. Oxygen-consuming bacteria convert plant matter into mostly carbon dioxide, which is bad, but it's not anywhere near as bad as methane. Anaerobic bacteria, bacteria that exists without the presence of oxygen, anaerobic uh, deteriorate, and it's not all bacterial. Some of it's just straight chemical reactions. Anaerobic processes convert the carbon, the car, you know, the, 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 the carbohydrates, the the, the sugars and starches uh, and cellulose and whatnot of this ancient plant material convert it directly into methane. So when permafrost melts, more often than not, 
it immediately goes anaerobic and it starts producing methane like crazy. And he said, that's happening all over the Arctic right now because all this warm air that was, you know, I mean, the cold air came down here, picked up a bunch of our heat. I mean, I was running a, you know, heater in the boat all the time, right? You, all of us were, I think, you know, in fact, we even had a frozen pipe. It's hard to keep the thing 60 degrees. And then, you know, it goes back up there. Because that cold air wasn't supposed to come down here in the first place. Normally, the jet stream would keep it away from us, but the wall of air that keeps the jet stream up to the north has been weakened by global warming, by a reduction in the temperature gradient between the northern latitudes and the temperate, in our latitudes, between the Arctic and us. Meanwhile, you know, the IPCC report, this new IPCC report came out a week or so ago, and the Heartland Institute, God bless them, bless their little hearts. The Heartland Institute uh, has come up with the NIPCC report, the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the UN. And uh, the president of uh, the Heartland Institute, Joseph Bast, says that uh, you know climate scientists have been corrupted. Uh, here's here's what Limbaugh had to say about them this morning about you know regular climate uh, climate scientists the 97 98 99 percent who say look out but it is a way to get grant money and research money and that's how these people make a living they don't actually work and they don't actually produce anything they just feed from the public teat and any number of them do it. And this is how they survive. This is how they, this is how they live. They don't have jobs. They don't have salaries. They live off of taxpayer money, grant money, or, or, or fundraising, siphon some of that. Right. That's uh, courtesy of Media Matters and, uh, the Limbaugh show. And so the, this NIPCC report, I mean, the, the lead authors and the authors of it, um, you know, Fred Singer, well, first of all, who is the Heartland Institute? The, the Heartland Institute has received around $67 million over the past 30 years from groups including ExxonMobil, the Koch Brothers, and the Scafe Foundation. Right. Back in the 90s, these same people were shilling for the tobacco industry. In fact, Joseph Best, uh, the Heartland Institute current president in 1998, said the EPA had to twist and torture its data to find a public health risk from secondhand smoke. Philip Morris, Tom Borelli is one of their executives, he actually wrote a memo in 90, 1993 calling the Heartland Institute part of their five-year plan. Fred Singer in 93 was hooking up with Philip Morris to, and APCO Associates, PR firm, to debunk studies showing the link between secondhand smoke and cancer. Right. But, you know, that didn't bother the folks, the good folks at Fox News, oddly enough. I mean, the, you know, the, the, you could call it blatantly dishonest, but... Uh, so an international group of scientists are now saying that they have debunked a recent report that came out of the U.N. on climate change. 
they're releasing their own findings. They say that the doom and gloom is all wrong, according to their science. Mike Tobin is live in Chicago, so good morning to you, Mike. Yeah, so on it goes. Yeah, we've got, you know, they, they, they spent four minutes on this. They spent five minutes on the original IPCC report, mostly making fun of it, and it's all... You know, misinformation and not mentioning that these guys are funded by the fossil fuel industry and the right wingers. And it's all very, very bizarre. So what do we do with this? I think we call it out. And I think we start talking about the, the, the coal. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman program. Instead of calling them the coal barons or the oil barons, we need to start calling them the carbon barons. We need to invent a new phrase. Robber barons of yesteryear built the railroad, steel yards, and mills. Just like a whirlwind scatters dust, they trampled all who dared resist and lived like kings within their halls, like kings within their gilded halls. Robber barons are here today. Faces change, but the game's the same. And though their empires may collapse, they still command their pound of flesh and drink their wine within their walls. Drink their wine within their hidden walls. All right, so say I had a broker, one, and say I went to <laughs> him or her and asked him or her her advice for my stock portfolio this year or next, what would she or he be likely to say? Well, you'd be lucky if she or he had thought about the issue. I think the, um, the reality is that climate change and finance are still very much viewed as separate worlds disconnected from each other. And so if you're lucky, uh, your broker would have begun to think about it and would be aware that there's a growing uh, concern even about, um, you know, his or her very own business, which is what do I tell my clients about their exposure to this um, to this growing uh, growing risk in, in terms of how it will impact their portfolio. Because if you look at some of the most profitable companies on the Forbes list of the top ten, I think half of them are energy companies. BP, Shell, Shell's the top one, I think. Yeah, the, the energy business is a profitable business. In, in many ways, what an energy company is, is a expert at investing capital in a prudent way from the perspective of financial returns because they need to have extremely long time horizons amid lots of uncertainty. And so the skill set they become very good at in addition to the engineering is investing capital. Um, so they're, they tend to be profitable and, uh, and if oil prices are strong, they tend to be extremely profitable. So let's buy some stocks. Well, that was a good theory 10 years ago. And to go back to the time trajectory, the, the research was done well over six years ago um, about two and a half years ago, an organization in the UK called Carbon Tracker uh, took the original fundamental research and, and expressed it in, a, in an extremely powerful, user-friendly way with good graphics and came out with this idea and presented it as a carbon bubble and talked specifically about the investment risk of the shares of the public companies that own fossil fuel reserves. That's where they focused on and they presented it as a market risk and, and focused on market regulators, particularly in the UK where a lot of oil companies trade. Um, and so what they were saying is there's this undisclosed risk that if we get our policy act together, um, these fossil fuel-based companies 
are susceptible to significant decline in value. And they, the share of the UK stock market is dom- not dominated, but significantly concentrated in oil stocks. And therefore, the European and particularly UK pension funds have a lot of exposure to this risk. Mm. It was a very effective strategy um, that then made its way to the, you know, the mass mobilization movement that you talked about. Bill McKibben did a great job uh, marshalling it with a, with a, a really important um, article he wrote uh, called Do the Math. And, um, uh, but it really started before that. It started, to my knowledge, at Swarthmore College, right. uh, focused on coal probably a year and a half mm. before the Carbon Tracker Report came out. So it just gives us an idea of how long it takes for these ideas to move from science into the mainstream. And in fact, um, even though it's now in the mainstream, most mainstream investors are still dismissing it mm. as kind of a not our issue, it's a political issue, not an investment issue. So one of the things that's prodding people to even think about this subject is a student movement that's growing up Mm -hmm. around the country calling for fossil-free investments Mm -hmm. and sort of, and calling for divestment by colleges uh, along the lines of the campaigns that saw divestment from South Africa years ago. Here's a quick video that kind of lays out where the campaign is at. It's a trailer for a longer movie. Check it out. new movement is sweeping across college campuses and universities around the United States, Canada, and the world. Fossil fuel divestment. Last fall, students from across the country came together to launch the Go Fossil Free Divestment Campaign. We quickly spread to over 300 colleges and universities across the country. We spent our first fall semester building power, creating groups on campuses, learning more about schools' endowments and finances, presenting to our boards of trustees, and coming together for regional convergences. And then in the spring, we hit the ground running. We presented to dozens of boards of trustees, held a national convergence at Swarthmore. We made it into nearly every national news outlet, from the New York Times to This American Life and even Fox News. I'm going to be dead soon. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and the pressure's beginning to work. Seven schools have already committed to divesting from fossil fuels. And it's not just college campuses. Over 15 cities have committed to divestment, along with a growing number of religious groups. Like the entire National United Church of Christ. And we're just getting started. How are the universities and colleges responding to the fossil-free divestment campaign? Well, it's it's certainly a mixed story. um, But um, I I can report that two of our leading elite uh, Ivy League schools uh, came out and decided not to divest um, from fossil fuels. Um, Brown University, the, the campaign on the campus there was just to focus on coal, which frankly is their easy uh, decision from a divestment point of view. And the president of the school uh, issued a long and thoughtful statement on their decision why they should not invest. And um, to be honest, I, you know, I, I fully sympathize with all of the economic arguments um, I understand the business model of a university like that. Um, but I do think if we look back at that letter, maybe even only five years from now, and substitute, for example, the word fossil fuel, perhaps with the word slavery, um, we, will, we will be aghast at how we thought about this issue. Um, within five years, certainly within ten years, the, the crisis is going to be apparent. And... Um, and again, not that Brown's decision to divest from coal companies is in itself going to change 
the behavior of the coal industry or the behavior of public politicians. Um, but we need to have the elite uh, universities, in particular, taking a stand, a moral stand. Um, and similarly, Harvard came out, and different set of arguments, but basically the same fundamental economics requires us to do this, um, determined that they wouldn't divest from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think, um, I think our, our, our leading institutions have let us down. Well, they, they dismissed the divest from South Africa campaign, too, for many years. Right, right. But this is fundamentally different than South Africa. I think what we need to grasp is that South Africa was obviously a moral issue. I believe this is a moral issue, and we're only beginning to think of it as a moral issue. But the scale of this overwhelms South Africa. I mean, South Africa is a relatively small economy, and the, the main developed economy world's exposure to South Africa was almost trivial, I would say. This is the fundamental energy system that drives the global economy, uh, on a, and it's a scale that is incomp- you know, incomparable to any challenge we've had to deal with before. So how on earth is the world of finance going to help us? If, as you described it, it's models, as we've talked before, it's models don't help us. Mm. It's consciousness isn't really there yet, but the clock is ticking. Mm. Um, Just divesting from things, I'm assuming, won't be the whole picture. We also have to talk about what to invest in instead. You've been working on that part of this Mm. picture as well. What have you come up with? Well, I, I think you're right. The, the answer isn't simply divestment. Um, I think the divestment movement has, has done a fantastic job at shining a light on this issue and, and putting it into um, the mainstream conversation. And you now have the head of the World Bank talking about divestment and fossil f- or stranded assets, and you have the head of the OECD now talking about a stranded, I, I believe he said a stranded planet or stranded assets. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's, it has succeeded in moving this conversation into the mainstream. But, of course, those that don't favor a divestment strategy can rightly point to the logic that simply by large investors, much less smaller investors, selling their oil stocks isn't going to change how oil stocks invest their capital. Mm-hmm. Exxon hasn't sold stock in I don't know how many decades. Mm-hmm. They, invest, they reinvest their own cash flow. So um, divestment is a is a um, it's a it's an agenda setter. It's not an economic strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you asked about how finance can can um, can respond to this. I think uh, clearly there's financial risk management and the tools we understand about financial risk management, which is the future is uncertain, and we need to look at a wide range of scenarios in our financial forecasting. Anyone who's doing forward-looking financial research and not trying to begin to factor in the probability and the timing of a real policy um, uh, response to climate change is not doing their job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and markets tend to be, you know, markets have gotten a really bad name as a result of the financial collapse. But I continue to maintain that markets are actually quite good at anticipating future events that aren't yet logically being discussed uh, the stock market in particular, and the bond market, um, ha- have an uncanny ability to discount future issues that aren't on the news every day. And so I personally have divested from my coal and tar sand stocks years ago, um, and, and oil stocks as well, because I don't want to be the last one mm. to the party, not, not, you know, leaving aside the moral issue, just from a purely financial investment perspective, 
Um, I believe it's only a matter of time before the markets begin to discount this risk. But and, and why wait? People said the housing market was solid as houses, too. <laughs> Even as we saw irresponsibly sold mortgages spiraling yeah. into insane um, derivative stocks, right. that bubble didn't burst until it was ready to crash all over us. Yeah, and, and there, were, there were prescient investors who stayed away from the subprime mortgage market and stayed away from, um, you know, th there are people that began to uh, reduce their exposure to all financial markets because they saw that bubble coming. It's, it's, not, it's simply not true that no one saw mm -hmm. it coming. Um, this is a different kind of bubble, though. Th th that, was a, um, that was a bubble that was um, created through um, systematic fraud. This bubble is not systematic fraud. This is systematic ignorance. And, um, and I think it will take us, unfortunately, longer to process the reality that you know it, it boils down to exponential growth of the emissions of fossil fuel CO2 is not consistent with our scientific understanding of a finite bias biosphere mm. and no one is, is there's no fraud involved in that it's just we're in a collective denial um, and can our world economy withstand the kind of hit a carbon asset bubble crash would be? You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough question. I wish I could rattle off an easy answer. Um, when I first wrote about this now two years ago, I called my piece our $20 trillion big choice. And, and what I meant by that is that I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation that, that estimated that the current market value of the fossil fuel reserves that we should not be burning at the time was worth about $20 trillion. I think that was a conservative estimate. Now, only, a, only a, a small portion of that, less than half of that, is owned by public companies. So the public market exposure is actually the smaller piece mm -hmm. of the total exposure. Think about the economic exposure of the OPEC countries whose economies are primarily based on selling oil um, or selling fossil fuels. Um, you know, the, the, the subprime crisis caused a direct write-off of, I'm told, $2.7 trillion. Mm -hmm. If my calculation is even roughly correct, absorbing a $20 trillion financial write-off into the economy, even if the banks aren't as exposed to it as they were to subprime, which I think is probably true. I mean, banks have exposure to the energy industry, but I don't think they're holding massive leveraged portfolios of toxic, mm -hmm. risky um, you know, they have loans to, to, to small oil companies. They don't have leveraged portfolios of exotic, um, you know, uh, derivative-based um, uh, subprime. But, but $20 trillion is a big number. And even if it's going to be managed through a decade or more, as I said earlier, markets tend to discount these new realities very quickly. Um, so I, I, I don't think we're looking at a situation that's going to be an easy, smooth transition. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're already experiencing the volatility and will continue to. So you're a kind of calm guy. You worked for J.P. Morgan for years. You've been trying to tell this message. You've been saying this, ringing this alarm for years now. Mm. Is this you with your hair on fire? I often feel like I'm helpless. You know, I'm, I'm screaming out the window and no one's listening and everyone's going busy about their work. And, and in particular, the challenge that will be the hardest of this is not the economic 
absorption of, of, of the loss. It's the consequences of this new reality, which is that all things equal, it's going to be, we're going to have a slower growing economy with more expensive energy. That means all kinds of things beyond the value of oil stocks. Yeah. That means the debt capacity of nation states is probably going to be lower than we currently think it is, which means the debt to GDP problem is worse than we currently think it is. And the cost of the consequences of climate change, you know, the, the cleanup from this hurricane in, in, in Philippines. Um, the Philippines, who knows what that's going to be, much less the human loss of life, but just the economic consequences of increasingly regular storms. That's a off-balance sheet liability that's not factored into anyone's um, current, current fiscal situation. So adjusting to the consequences of this are actually going to be as difficult as the direct write-off. But aren't there also opportunities in a transition like this? Yeah, absolutely. And, they, and they're already happening. I mean, there, there are businesses being built today and fortunes being built today that are riding this transition from fossil fuel-based energy system to a clean, renewal-based energy system. And it's not a straight line, but it is probably the single biggest investment opportunity, business-building opportunity in the history of, of civilization. Um, I've seen estimates that suggest over the next 20 years we'll need to invest close to $20 trillion in the energy system alone and, and another close to $20 trillion in, the, uh, in water infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we need to do is channel capital out of the excessive speculative activity that Wall Street has now become addicted to and into this fundamental and, and morally essential um, real investment flow and, and stop worrying about whether my quarterly returns are being optimized when I do it. We just need to get on with it and we need some leadership to cause that to happen. Big news. Stanford University is breaking up with coal in response to a student-led divestment campaign, which is similar to the anti-apartheid divestment campaigns of the 1980s. Stanford University's Board of Trustees announced this week that it will remove all coal industry investments from Stanford's $18 billion endowment portfolio. In an interview with Democracy Now!, Stanford University junior Michael Penuelas says this is a very big deal. This is one of the first major uh, acknowledgements on the part of, a, of a, the administration of a major university that anthropogenic climate change is a risk and that the dollars that we are investing and funding our education off of uh, contribute to that. 
And we're talking about billions of dollars here that is being pulled out of coal by Stanford University. But I've heard from uh, a few climate scientists and environmental activists that they're concerned because Stanford is only pulling out their money from coal and they're leaving their oil investment. Well, Stanford says that it's going to now consider their oil investments next. Now, the coal industry is sort of dismissing the Stanford announcement, saying that it's just going to be a drop in the bucket of industry revenue. The way South Africa dismissed the divestment movement in the 80s. Proceed at your peril, fossil fuel industry. You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's activism update, the unstoppable fossil fuel divestment campaign. When 350.org began their campaign to push institutions with investment portfolios and sizable budgets to pull their money out of the fossil fuel industry, they received a lot of naysaying. What's the point? It can't be done. The problem is too big. We heard it over and over again. Luckily, 350.org founder Bill McKibben didn't listen. With the recent announcement from Stanford University, they've racked up almost 100 victories. Stanford is the 11th educational institution to sign on to 350's plan, and with their prestige alumni power and location, it may be the biggest win to date. From McKibben, quote, Stanford on the edge of Silicon Valley is at the forefront of the 21st century economy. It's very fitting then that they've chosen to cut their ties with the 18th century technology of digging up black rocks and burning them. Since it's a globally minded institution, it knows the havoc that climate change creates around our planet. Other forward looking and internationally minded institutions will follow, I'm sure, unquote. More and more companies and organizations are realizing exactly what McKibben explained. Even if there is a short-term monetary gain from investing in coal and other fossil fuels, the long-term effects on the climate doesn't just impact our health, they also impact the bottom line. Stanford President John Hennessy described the university's pledge to divest as a multifaceted decision. Quote, Stanford has a responsibility as a global citizen to promote sustainability for our planet, and we work intensively to do so through our research, our educational programs, and our campus operations. The university's review has concluded that coal is one of the most carbon-intensive methods of energy generation and that other sources can be readily substituted for it. Moving away from coal in the investment context is a small but constructive step while work continues at Stanford and elsewhere to develop broadly viable sustainable energy solutions for the future. Unquote. The push for divestment is spreading across the continent. Editorials from Canadian publications like the Taiyi reference Seattle, Portland, and now Stanford as examples of cities and institutions being swayable on fossil fuels. According to the authors of the June 2nd op-ed, quote, divestment from fossil fuel companies then makes sense not only from an ecological point of view, but also financially. They continued by saying that individual and institutional investors who leave themselves exposed to a fossil fuel industry in its twilight will bear substantial financial risk. 
And then they close with an optimism we can all get around. Quote, the unstoppable divestment movement is a hopeful catalyst for the low carbon transition that is biophysically necessary, morally right, and the gateway to genuine prosperity. from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage Scientists say the West Antarctic ice sheet has begun a slow and probably irreversible collapse that could eventually raise global sea levels by 10 to 15 feet. NASA's lead polar ice researcher said, quote, this is really happening. There's nothing to stop it now. Two new studies show the warming ocean is eating away underneath a group of massive glaciers on the Antarctic coastline that hold back the massive West Antarctic ice sheet from flowing into the ocean. Glaciologist Ian Jockin tells NPR... If this glacier were to completely sort of disintegrate, um, it would kind of create a vacuum of ice to which the rest of the, the ice sheet would sort of flow into and, and largely destabilize much of the rest of the ice sheet. And that has enough ice to raise sea level by about 10 feet. By about 10 feet. This comes just weeks after the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report comes out with different numbers. Now they've got to revise those numbers, revise them upwards just based on this new information of this collapsing ice sheet. Yes, now they estimate that this process would take hundreds of years. But if it is irreversible, they warn, quote, many of the world's coastal cities will eventually have to be abandoned. But if this As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The collapse of large parts of the ice sheet in West Antarctica appears to have begun and is almost certainly unstoppable. That a quote, according to a report from the New York Times, which credits global warming as the cause. Meanwhile, Marco Rubio is probably running for president. It seems obvious you're moving closer to running for president. I've openly said in the past that it's something I'll consider at the end of this year, that I'll look at a number of factors, personal factors, but also uh, whether I could best promote this message and, and actually put in place these ideas that I want to see put in place. Senator Marco Rubio says he's ready to be president if the platform will allow him to promote his message and his ideas. One of those ideas being 
climate change denialism. But let me get this straight. You do not think that human activity, the production of CO2, has caused warming to our climate? I do not believe that human activity is causing these dramatic changes to our climate the way these scientists are portraying it. That's what I do not. And I do not believe that the laws that they propose we pass will do anything about it, except it will destroy our economy. It is now officially the price of entrance into the 2016 Republican field. You either need to literally know nothing or pretend that you know nothing. Back in 2007, Rubio treated global warming as an accepted truth. On the issue of energy, global warming, uh, dependence on foreign sources of fuel, and capitalism have come together to create opportunities for us that were unimaginable just a few short years ago. He advocated Florida take the lead on energy. This nation, and ultimately the world, is headed towards emission caps and energy diversification. The demand towards such advances will create an industry to meet it. Florida should become the Silicon Valley of that industry. Just last year, Rubio was far more cautious in his denial, saying there was debate on the issue. The climate's always changing. That's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is whether man-made activity is, the, is what's contributing most to it. And I, I understand that people say there's a significant scientific consensus on that issue, but I've actually seen reasonable debate on that, per, on that principle. But Marco Rubio's devolution on climate change is right in line with the Republican Party. In fact, the GOP's embrace of climate denialism is one of the most dispiriting trends of the last decade. In 2003, 52% of Republicans thought global warming was largely due to human activities. Just over a decade later, that number has dropped to 41%. And it's no better with Republican politicians. As recently as 2008, the Republican Party called on their members to address the risk of climate change based on sound science. Today, just six years later, GOP 2016 hopefuls are running away from sound science towards denialism and obfuscation. Apparently, it's somewhat of a prerequisite. In 2011, Chris Christie said climate change was real and impacting New Jersey. When you have over 90% of the world's scientists who have studied this stating that climate change is occurring and that humans play a contributing role, it's time to defer to the experts. Just two years later, he dismissed climate change as an esoteric theory, not worth his time. Several experts I've heard from say the destruction, though, from Sandy was probably more severe because of elements of climate change, including, including rising sea levels. Are you not willing to say that? No, true? I'm not, because they, what did they say? First of all, they, this is their business. They study it and they say, probably, maybe. I've got a place to rebuild here and people want to talk to me about esoteric theories. And Chris Christie's take is right in line with the other 2016 contenders. You know, you always have to be worried about something that is considered a so-called scientific theory that fits every scenario. What I think on the left I get a little tired of is this idea that, uh, the sanctimonious idea that somehow science has decided all this and so therefore you can't have a view. Anybody who's ever studied any geology knows that uh, over periods of time, long periods of time, that the climate changes, okay? I'm not sure anybody exactly knows why. This is political cowardice at its worst and most dangerous. But if there's anything good to come out of their waffling, it's that it's become increasingly cringe-inducing just to watch. Marco Rubio hedged and equivocated this weekend out of fear and weakness because the Republican Party is losing the debate on climate change and increasingly, they seem to know it. What have we done? This case is gone and the next one.
next week, we're finally going to have the EPA's plans for controlling and regulating carbon emissions. Uh, we've been expecting this for a long time. Now, this is not going to be the beginning of the end necessarily for our carbon addiction in this country. They're going to be laying out how they plan to regulate carbon emissions. There will be a, a year-long period of public comment, a comment from those in the industry, those who are scientists who study carbon emissions, and then we'll finally have our actual regulations for carbon. Now, in advance of that, what are the Republicans going to do when the plan comes out, what their plans for regulating it are? We don't know exactly yet, but uh, we do have a clip from John Boehner, and it doesn't look good for any sort of regulation. Let's listen to what he says about climate change. I'm not, gonna, I'm not qualified to debate the science over climate change, uh, but uh, I am astute enough to understand that every proposal that has come out of this administration to deal with climate change involves hurting our economy and killing American jobs. And killing he's American children. <laughs> he's, he's apparently going to be reasonable about this, I think. I like that he admits up front he is not qualified to debate the science. He apparently is not even qualified to read the science or to ask questions of scientists about the science. <laughs> yes. He is not interested in the science. No he didn't debate. go to science class. He's not qualified for pretty much anything at this point. But he is certainly going to make blanket statements about the effect it'll have on our economy. Well, it's funny because we both start that, you know, his uh, statement about climate science, he and I both start what we say about it off the same way. I always say, I am not a climate scientist. Mm -hmm. I am in no position to debate climate science. Yeah. Whereas then I usually say the debate has already taken place yes. between climate scientists and they have all concluded. But what John Boehner says is, I'm not qualified to debate climate science, so we won't even consider it. So I'll we're reject just, all the... So I just reject it all, yeah. and we'll just talk about the economy. And this would be uh, economic suicide yeah. to do this to our economy, so I choose actual suicide over <laughs> an economic suicide. I'd rather have global warming kill us all first than to yes. kill our economy. Yeah. But, That's here's what, a, but here's the thing. If, if that was an actual choice, killing our economy versus killing our environment, and you chose killing our environment, okay, I disagree with that stupid. choice, but that's a rational choice. I mean, I could see why someone would make that choice, but that's a false choice. False choice. Yes. You don't, you don't have to kill our economy. This is the same bullshit that was always said throughout history from business interests who don't, who are already at the top, who don't want any change because they might be thrown off the top. Because as you know, chaos is a ladder. Exactly. <laughs> Some people like climbing that ladder. That's right. Uh, that's that's from a TV stuff. show I don't watch. Exactly. Game of Thrones again. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah he, he's wrong about so many different parts of it. The, the one, the false choice in that it would destroy the economy when investing and in, uh, developing renewable energy could very well be better for us in terms of creating jobs. 
uh, in terms of the actual cost of our power in some areas, I just saw a study last week showing that renewable energy in some areas of the country is now up to 20% less expensive than generating your electricity through coal. That's scary if you were a coal executive, but for the rest of it, it's, it's certainly good news. Yeah, but, uh, but it's also bad for the coal miners, right? Because, the, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they could transition to so- sun miners. <laughs> Yeah, it is bad for them. The only less, thing worse for them is less, the actual coal mining. I yeah, think. you can't get trapped in a sun mine. <laughs> exactly. You can't. Can you? Yeah, look, is it going to hurt certain people? Absolutely. Is it going to help other people? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So in the aggregate for society, is it a, is a net gain or a net loss? It's not clear, but I would imagine over time it will be a net gain. Mm. But this is the exact same argument that we've heard throughout. So, you know, back in was it the 30s or 40s, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle and exposed the atrocities that are happening in our factories and, and our food processing plants and all of that. Yeah. And that led to, you know, a huge swath of regulation. And the first thing that industry said was, oh my God, it's going to cost jobs, it's going to skyrocket prices, and it'll be economic uh, calamity and apocalypse, and we're all going to die starving and poor. Of course that didn't happen. And then in the 70s, when our lakes were catching on fire, yes. and, and you can breathe the air in L.A., and we had to set up stations on every street corner in downtown to, to give oxygen to people who would pass out, and Nixon... Uh, created the EPA, yeah. and they passed all the regulation through the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. You know what it did? It cleaned up our air and cleaned up our water. And you know what it did to the industries? They acted a little bit more responsibly because they're forced to do so. Yeah. And you know what happened? Our economy didn't crash and burn. It was fine. It, it, will, it will be fine now. I mean, I would rather not live like the people in Beijing live right now, where they can't see anything or go outside because yeah. the air is so bad. And so the EPA needs to regulate, and we need to get a handle on this um, situation. And we can't be afraid of these uh, these fear mongering idiots who claim that making any kind of change to the current situation will result in apocalypse for everyone. Yeah, and I, I, we have had a little bit of progress. I know this because we had the quote uh, just this week that you just saw from John Boehner saying that he's not qualified and he's not going to debate the science. Back in two thousand nine. Let's see what his stance was on debating the science. He said, George, the idea that carbon dioxide is a carcinogen that is harmful to our environment is almost comical. Every time we exhale, we exhale carbon dioxide. Every cow in the world, you know, when they do what they do, you've got more carbon dioxide. So he's learned at least something. So he was talking... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, keep going. No, he was talking to George Snuffleupagus there. Exactly. And I'll tell you what George Snuffleupagus did not say after he said that. It's like, so you're not up on the science on any of this? No. You're pretending that you don't get this? Why are you acting dumber than I know you are? Yeah. He didn't say any of that yeah. stuff. Did he he just say, went, okay, comes, well, that's your point. Here comes John Boehner with his talking points. Yeah. Did he not say that? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and bear in mind, by the way, that this is... Uh, House Majority Leader. He has been in Congress for 23 years. He has been the leader of his party in Congress for six, seven, eight years. And he doesn't know anything about the science. Obviously, this guy is not qualified to remain in government. If one of the most important issues that's going to face our species in the next century wasn't interesting enough for him to look it up in the past more than two decades. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. 
Today, I have a little bit of a story for you about the show itself, sort of where we've been, where we are, and where I hope to go, and how you can help us get there. So a story like that, of course, it starts with the show itself. You're probably familiar with it. You don't have to have me tell you much about it. But I will tell you that the the slogan of the show has been basically forever to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media. And the mission has expanded a little bit since then, but there are two key words in there, and we're going to focus on one at a time, aggregate and amplify. So under the umbrella of aggregation, of course, that's the show itself. We've been aggregating uh, voices from great liberal media shows since our inception, and and that was the the seed from which this whole show grew. More recently, we've been adding to that. We started doing activism segments, aggregating the best activism opportunities around, because, of course, that's the flip side of learning about the world, which is learning how you can engage with the world and sort of make it a better place. So that's what activism is all about. It's incredibly important. We've been focusing a lot on it, and I think things are going well. You know, We've been doing it pretty steadily for six months or more now, and I think things are going well. I think that's a really important thing to to continue, obviously. But all of that falls under the the umbrella of aggregation. Under the umbrella of amplification, that has pretty much always been depended on just the size of the audience of the show. You know, however many people listen to the show, that's how much we're able to amplify the show uh, and and the voices and the uh, activism that go along with it. And, and like that's pretty good. We're doing okay, but. For a long time, I've been wanting to increase our ability to amplify beyond just the show itself. And so a few years ago, I started implementing the the ability to uh, get just individual segments from the show. You go to the website, link to an individual segment, and you can share your favorite ones through social networks or email or, you know, whatever you want to do. And so that's been good. You know, that's sort of the most rudimentary version of the ability to increase the amplification of the show. More recently, I uh, invested a whole bunch in building a new website, one that is actually built specifically to help with that exact thing, engaging a, a group of people to take action. So that's everything from, you know, organizing our activism opportunities to uh, making it easier to go into individual uh, segments of the show that you like and spread those far and wide. And, you know, again, all of that is, has been great, but it, to me, they're all just steps along a path. And the way I see it, the next step is to build what we don't have yet which is a really first-class mobile experience for all of this. And my guess is that having a really first-class mobile experience to engage with the show is really going to increase our ability to amplify our message, everything from our segments to our activism and so on, and, and the show itself, just spreading the word about the show, getting more people to listen to it. So that's basically where we're at right now. We've been investing a lot in the website. Uh, Katie, who does all of our social media and activism segments, has been actually working with the show. She doesn't get paid nearly what she's worth, but she gets paid what I can afford. And so she's been with us since the beginning of the year officially. And now I'm looking to build uh, an app that's a lot more investment. So that's sort of 
where we've been and where we are. And the next step takes a level of investment I just don't have. So when, when I found out how much a, a mobile app would cost to build, I thought, well, shoot, I guess we just can't do that. And then I thought, you know what? The listeners have come through for me before. Maybe they will come through this time. And so that is the point in the story where we are right now. So what I've done is over the last couple of weeks, I put a lot of thought into launching a fundraiser. The fundraiser launches today and with it, hopefully is uh, you know a- enough of an inspirational story to get you to want to help best of left take this next step on its path and also combined with a lot of fun perks for donating. And, you know, generally if you donate to the show, it's either thank you very much or thank you for becoming a member. Here's access to some bonus content and some archives and that's it. Uh, for, for this fundraiser for the month of June only, it'll end at the end of the month and then we'll be done with it. Uh, there are lots of other perks that, that you can get along with, uh, you know, membership access and bonus content, and access to the archives and things like that. We're doing, uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts. We're doing, uh, you know, special thanks on the show. We're giving away the opportunity to guest introduce the show. For, I mean, honestly, that's my most favorite one. I'm really excited to, to have some people donate and be able to, uh, you know, come on and guest introduce the show. You'll be right at the front and you can say, you know, introduce yourself and say hi to your mom and then introduce like, and well, now you'll be hearing Rachel Maddow and, uh, the majority report and so on. So I, I think, I think that'll be a good one. And, uh, you know, you can get personal messages on the show if you want to, you know, uh, wish someone a happy anniversary or whatever. Uh, there's the opportunity to do, uh, just sort of one-time commercial ads, uh, selling ad space and lifetime memberships. And then finally, the biggest one is I'm going to give away the microphone that I use for the show. This is huge. Uh, I've been using this microphone for more than 500 episodes, and I won it. I didn't buy this microphone. I won it for winning the Best Produced Podcast Award in 2009. And so there's some sentimental value involved, and uh, I'll be giving that away to one uh, lucky person who is, if someone is willing to donate a sizable amount of money to to help us towards our goal, and then go to the fundraiser, you'll see all the details there. Uh, the the extra benefit of for whoever purchases this microphone, it'll be a, a nice little jab at David Backman. If you're curious, you just have to go to the fundraiser and you'll see all the details about uh, about what I mean there. So I'm excited about this. I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I hope you'll at least go and check out the fundraising page, uh, see the different donation levels, see the perks you can get for it. Uh, I, I've produced a video of myself talking sort of in, in greater detail about the fundraiser itself. And, and frankly, I mean, a, a video of me talking is basically worth the price of admission in and of itself because most of you, you've only heard my voice. You don't even know what I look like. So just think of the excitement of actually getting to see me on video, uh, it, it'll be, it, it's a chance of, it's at least a chance of this year, maybe not of a lifetime, but of this year. Uh, that, so that'll be exciting. 
Obviously, you will be hearing about this fundraiser as we make progress throughout the month. If I forgot to mention, the, the fundraising goal is ambitious. I, I will admit it's an ambitious goal, but I think achievable of $15,000. That is basically what I think it takes to uh, you know really do justice to the mission that we have to uh, you know continue to maintain uh, the, this top-notch website that we're trying to maintain, uh, maintain Katie and make sure she doesn't uh, take her skills elsewhere and build a first-rate mobile experience for people to engage with the show in ways that really aren't possible now and to take the show into the future in that way. So if you are interested in helping with that mission, check out the fundraiser on the website, and I will be enormously grateful to you just for entertaining the mere possibility of uh, joining in on the fundraiser and helping us meet our goal. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations, which you can do now only through this month's fundraiser. Of course, everyone can support the show just by continuing to tell everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained we can't see past our own sad stories and wonder why we're missing we can't see past our own sad stories and Wonder what we're doing Can't see